Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, an educator at the Nature Institute and your host for In Dialogue with Nature, our podcast of readings, conversations, and talks that explore the practice of a conscious and caring engagement with the natural world. Today's podcast, entitled In Search of Barry Lopez, is the broadcast of a talk given by the Nature Institute's senior researcher and educator, John McAllis. Before his death in 2020, the award-winning writer Barry Lopez spent a half-century traveling to 80 countries in his pursuit of an understanding of human identity and destiny. He generated many non-fiction and fiction works, including volumes of essays and short stories on the natural world that some critics likened to those of Thoreau and John Muir. This podcast honors his life, lyricism, and insights. And now, In Search of Barry Lopez with John McAllis. This is a bit of an experiment, just that you know that we're going to embark on a bit of an experiment together. And it was published as Appreciating Barry Lopez, but as I worked my way into it, I found that perhaps a more appropriate title would be In Search of Barry Lopez. Because It is an interesting path of discovery to try to live into and through a person's writing and meet the person behind them. That's what I'd like to do with you to some extent tonight, as best I can. Start somewhere a little differently. The writer Nan Shepherd, I think many of you know, a Scottish writer, ended her, or concluded her very beautiful, slender journal of her experiences in the Cairngorm Mountains with a passage in which we find the sentence, the thing to be known grows with the knowing. The thing to be known grows with the knowing. That's somewhat the experience I had with Barry. Lopez, is that you could say in the beginning you have a very prolific, a very fine writer, a very conscientious writer, a very gentle writer in many ways, but as one begins to read into it, one finds a very complex, thoughtful individual. And that's a statement, this the thing to be known grows with the knowing that can be taken in different ways. On the one hand, any knowledge, if it is genuine, lets the object that is known grow. It becomes more interesting. It raises new questions. The questions with which you first meet it change. And as you begin to experience, now this person, new questions, he begins to show us something different. And that's the other side of it. Because in this, the thing to be known grows with the knowing, the subject-object relationship shifts. So the subject, the knower, of course, the thing to be known grows. But on the other side, the thing to be known begins to become more intimately related to the one who would know it. 
And in that intimacy of relatedness begins to be able to show aspects of itself or themselves that it couldn't in the beginning. So this growing takes place between subject and object, not one or the other. And that growing, I'm going to say, is the experience of meaningfulness. It becomes more meaningful, not simply better known in its details, but it begins to speak differently, more richly, in a fuller manner. The complexity becomes less off-putting and more inviting. And I think this is one of those aspects of Barry Lopez that is so enticing and engaging is that the way he works his way into the landscapes and the people and the situations he meets is he describes them in a way where he literally invites the reader to become more of a participant not simply to know more about it. I would say he's a person who eludes simple explanations. He's complex. Barry was not a simple person. And the more that I lived into it, I found that the only simple thing we can say is that he was a writer. And he was a writer. He was a prolific writer. Began when he was about 19 and never stopped until his death in 2020. He wrote. I'd like to read some of how he describes becoming a writer in a little bit. I'm going to read a lot of Barry tonight, or not a lot, but enough so that you get a good sense of him. He's been called many things, a travel writer, an environmental writer, a nature writer. He was an essayist. He's received many awards. None of those categories actually captures, I think, what Barry tried to do. He was a storyteller. And one of the threads that goes through his writing is a sense that story is something very important in our lives. That the stories we tell color the way we see the world that in many ways the future for Barry Lopez lay in this challenge to tell stories that bore within them the seeds of a new way of being on earth and a new way of knowing what it is to be on earth. He was a storyteller who in the stories, he didn't try to bring the past constantly to new expression, but tried to tell stories that open new possibilities. He says, the only thing a storyteller needs to know is that the stories you tell need to help. Not to tear down not to tear apart, not to make one thing better than the other. The stories are there to help. And this is, I think, one of the greatest things that you can say about Barry Lopez is that at the end of his life, his only question really was, did I help? Did I help? 
people would say yes. His closest friends would say, Barry, you helped. The stories people tell have a way of taking care of them. If stories come to you, care for them and learn to give them away where they are needed. Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to be alive. Barry Lopez was born on January 6, 1945, on the north shore of Long Island Sound. He spent his childhood years in the San Fernando Valley of California. His mother had a lively life of relationships, an interesting life of relationships. Her second husband, Barry's father, had neglected to tell her that he was at the time married with a child in Florida and yet married Barry's mother. Together they had two children, Barry and his brother, and moved to California where they then divorced. And Barry writes about this time, after my father left, not to be seen again, mother bought a small one-bedroom house on a half acre of land in the town of Reseda. For boys my age, growing up then in the northern San Fernando Valley, adventure unfolded in fruit orchards and wisteria hedges, in horse pastures and haylofts, and around farming operations, truck gardens, and chicken ranches. We hiked in the Santa Monica Mountains, and we caught rides on slow freights west from Reseda to Canoga Park and back. Lovely picture, isn't it? Boys hopping a freight train to go out for the afternoon. And we rode our bikes out as far as Porter Ranch, the rural fringes of Valley Settlement, where braqueros worked the fields and where encounters with jackrabbits, even rattlesnakes, were not unusual. One advantage of growing up in a single-parent home, it wasn't called that back then, of course, a broken home was the preferred term, is that if your mother is an interesting or handsome woman, she can attract the attention of interesting men. My brother and I knew several such men, all but one in my memory impeccable in their conduct and generous toward us. I remember picnics at the home of a movie stuntman, who kept a rambling, jerry-built house in an unspoiled part of the Calabasas Hills, where he dammed a creek to create a swimming hole, and picnics at the summer house of a man who was the gentlest person I ever knew, a horticulturalist at the Santa Barbara Botanical Garden, whom for a long time I wished my mother would marry. For years, I believed my childhood nothing out of the ordinary. This was the child's life. But it was a sort of bohemian existence. Mother was strict with Dennis and me about table and social manners. She disciplined us and was conscientious about our schooling. But I remember no impatience, no indifference toward imagination.
this changed radically when Barry Lopez was 11, 1956, his mother married again. A fairly successful magazine publisher from New York. They left San Fernando Valley and moved to a penthouse apartment on East 35th Street in Manhattan. So quite a remarkable move. Again, what does he say about it? When I was 11, my mother married again, and we moved back east to an apartment in the Murray Hills section of Manhattan. I would live there for six years before going away to college. This change was wrenching, socially, economically, and geographically. I was bewildered by it, a penthouse apartment, a Jesuit prep school, Saturday afternoon trap shooting at the New York Athletic Club's field, debutante balls at the plaza and the pierre. Gone were the rural, agricultural, and desert landscapes to which I was so attached. They were replaced by summers on the Jersey Shore and by visits to eastern Alabama, where my mother had grown up. But for the first time, I had an allowance. And when I began to grasp from my new classmates, all boys, what went with this new life, with no cars, where no one bicycled alone at night to the sound of big sprinklers, slow chucking water over alfalfa fields. He lived into the life in New York. He actually thrived there. He became a very good student, a very good athlete, and went on from prep school to Notre Dame University, where he entered with fully intending to become an aeronautical engineer, not a writer. That changed. Sophomore year. The fall of 1962, I entered University of Notre Dame with the intention of becoming an aeronautical engineer. But once I got my driver's license, I began leaving school on weekends, camping out or sleeping in the cars I borrowed, whatever was necessary to see the surrounding country, from Michigan's Upper Peninsula to West Virginia. I once drove to Mississippi and back with my roommate over a weekend, 1,100 miles, just to see it, drawn by little more than the lure of the Natchez Trace. And during my sophomore and junior years, I started writing stories that had nothing to do with classroom assignments. I understood the urge to write as a desire to describe what happened, what I saw when I went outside. Story as I understood it by reading Faulkner, Hardy, Cather, and Hemingway was a powerful and clarifying human invention. The language alone, as I discovered it in Gerard Manley Hopkins and Faulkner, was exquisitely beautiful, also weirdly and mysteriously evocative. My attitude toward language and story 
crystallized on a single afternoon in my sophomore year. I cut a class to hear Robert Fitzgerald read from his new translation of the Odyssey. I'd heard the translation was brilliant. What was spellbinding about his reading, however, was the way the audience became galvanized in beauty by his presentation. History, quest, longing, metered prose, moral consternation, and fantastic image all came together in that room. The feeling broadened and calmed us. Whatever Fitzgerald did in that hour, that's what I wanted to do. I was driven to write, but of course anguished over my efforts. Who was I to speak? What had I to say? As a college student of 19, I was being encouraged in the idea that if I spoke, I would be heard. The privilege that ensured this, however, was the accident of my mother's third marriage. It was nothing I'd earned. And much of what seemed to me so worth addressing, the psychological draw of landscape, that profound mystery I sensed in wild animals, was regarded as peculiar territory by other nascent writers at the university. The search for a voice, an authentic voice, is something that I'm going to say drove Barry Lopez as a youth, or as a young man, as a young writer, he never felt as though he had earned the right to speak, that everything that he had, he'd attained by accident. They weren't his. He didn't know yet how to find what is voice and what is subject. These two great riddles for a writer. Because a writer can't just write about anything. You have to write about something. And you have to write about it in such a way that the way you write about it brings some new quality, some new perspective of the subject to light. There has to be a certain quality of earned authenticity. He bumped around until he ended up in Oregon he worked in Wyoming as a wrangler, tried his hand at publishing, decided finally there was really nothing left for him to do except become a teacher, which is an odd idea. Nothing left to do except become a teacher, where teaching is, of course, the most important. But anyway, he thought, well, I am going to have to become a teacher to make uh, living, and he went then to Oregon. And in Oregon, he enrolled again in university for a master's degree, one which he never finished. But there he met an anthropology professor, Tolkien. And there he was invited into a community, a group of friends, of interesting people, 
where he began now to meet other voices. You have to think, he's grown up in a completely white environment, white middle class, middle upper class. His schooling has been only with boys and men, Notre Dame at the time. He asks again and again throughout his life, we call this an education? We call this an education, sort of taught to see the world in a single way with other people who also see it that way. And this now shifts. He finds himself as a guest in this professor's home. He says, I frequently met scholars and other insightful people from outside white orthodox middle-class culture. I didn't consider that these people spoke a truth no one else possessed. But listening to them, I saw the inadequacy of my education. It lacked any suggestion that these voices were necessary. That's an incredible statement. So for a young man, now he begins to see that there are other voices, there are other ways of seeing world, and he realizes these other voices are necessary. He began to deliberately seek the company of people outside of his own narrow cultural bounds. I was drawn especially to men and women who had not dissociated themselves from the passionate and spiritual realms of life. People for whom mystery was not a challenge to intelligence, but a bosom. The effect of these encounters was not a belief that I was now able to speak for such people, a notion I find dangerous as well as absurd, but an understanding that my voice was not the only voice. My truth was not the one truth. My tongue did not compose a pinnacle language. These other voices were just as indispensable. My earliest essays, I wanted to report what others were thinking. And I was drawn by a feeling that these other voices were being put asunder by progress in its manifold forms. As long as it took me to see that a writer's voice had to grow out of his own knowledge and desire, that it could not rise legitimately out of the privilege of race or gender or social rank, so did it take time to grasp the depth of cruelty inflicted upon all of us the moment voices are silenced, when for prejudicial reasons, people are told their stories are not valuable, not useful. This is the intention, or this is the, I'm going to say, the impulse with which Barry Lopez begins to write. So I first discovered Barry Lopez in in 1984, 1985, uh, and it was in a bookstore, a used bookstore in Basel, Switzerland. 
I had just moved to Switzerland and the culture was rather odd. They're coming from America, from Vermont, so rural America, into this very orderly culture, Germanic. I didn't know the language, I didn't know German, I certainly didn't know Swiss German, which is a story for itself, and came through a bookstore and found this very slender, this slim volume of stories in English. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is just what I need. And this was Barry Lopez, a series of short stories. It was one of his earliest books, and it contained these interesting short stories, which when you read them, you weren't quite sure what is fact and what is fiction. A wonderful way of storytelling, where it rings true through and through. Although, and you could say, oh, he's, he's relating someone else's story, or is he telling a story, or is he telling an encounter as a story? And I found that fascinating. Very, very austere language, very clear, crisp descriptions, but this weaving back and forth between what one would say is fact and fiction. Goethe does something similar, right, in his autobiography. This approach to dorying life, I want to say, where there is a certain truth in bringing the facts differently to life. Can I say it that way? He spoke about this with a storyteller, an Eskimo storyteller, an elder, and he asked him, well, what is it, do you have this distinction between fact and fiction? And the storyteller said, well, it might be a worthwhile distinction in certain circumstances. <laughs> no, we, we distinguish between two kinds of stories. Authentic stories and inauthentic stories. And Barry asked him, well, what's the difference? And he says, well, an authentic story is about us. And an inauthentic story is about you. Which is really quite remarkable. <laughs> it's a remarkable statement. For a storyteller, now this is a, not a contrived storyteller, but for a storyteller immersed in a living community, the challenge is, can I tell a story in such a way that the storyteller and the listener become caught up together in the unfolding of the story. Is it a story about us or is it a story about you? Where I am just listening to it, authenticity and inauthenticity, rather than fact and fiction. Can I tell the story now of a landscape in such a way that I invite the reader into the landscape, in such a way that they experience the landscape 
not me experiencing. They don't experience me experiencing the landscape, but I become sort of the mediator, the inviter, the one who opens the door to the mysteries of the landscape. Authenticity is something that happens, not something that is or isn't. It's something that happens. It grows in the process. I think this is perhaps one of the things that Lopez was most conscientious about, was to serve his reader in this way, to not impose anything on the reader, but to propose, to propose something, to propose it, to paint it, to bring it to life in such a way that the reader can feel familiar with it, can slip into it, and then the storyteller has the possibility to say, now look at that. <laughs> Not, this is what you should be looking at, but no, this is the landscape. Now look at this. There were certain threads that ran through these early stories. There was a gentle, frank, non-sentimental acceptance of the personal. When Barry Lopez wrote, you never had the sense that it was cold or abstract. He was part of it, and in being part of it, engaged the reader in becoming part of it. He never romanticized, certainly not the indigenous people he met, not the scientists or the explorers. He had a certain dispassionate, non-sentimental respect for the personal but he never shied away from it. He had a deep love of landscape that was coupled with a quality of awareness for detail. In the widest landscape, the Arctic, where in the right light, there are no limits. And you can get lost in this play of light and sky and tundra, stretching off, seeming unendingly towards a horizon, he brings us back to the curve of the rib of the skeleton of a lemming. And if you can imagine this arc from the widest to this very fine and always able to strike a tuning fork of resonance between detail and expanse. That there was a congruence. They belonged together. And something that one can begin to feel in his writing. And the third thread that I just like to mention is that he always has a sense of respect and wonder for the mythological, for the deep pool of experience that is inextricably bound up in what he refers to as what the body knows, this being embodied in place, 
and that, that body knowing, that the body experiences qualities of place that especially the Western mind does not grasp, but lives in the telling of the tales of the indigenous. He never, it's an interesting thing, Barry never sets the one over against the other. He doesn't say, this is better than that. Or, it's more important that we do this than that. But what he does is he says, listen, listen. This is also a voice of experience. Why, why, or what gives us the sense that it is right to silence that voice? Okay, so now we're going to dive into his work a little bit. He published his first major work, which you know is, of course, Of Wolves and Men. He was an incredible researcher. I think this is something very conscientious. Traveled for that book, he traveled, I think, three times back and forth across country, meeting people who knew wolves, uh, observing captive wolves, as well as traveling then to Alaska and parts of the Arctic to spend time with wolves. And in that research, he stumbled across a paper that was published in a journal of biology by a Bob Stevenson. And this paper caught his eye because it's the first paper which is co-authored by a field biologist, Western trained, and an indigenous hunter. It's a paper on the behavior of wolves. Lopez discovers this paper, reads it, recognizes there is something that strikes a chord for him, this is what he wants, and rings up Stevenson who's living up in Alaska, in Fairbanks, Alaska, and asks if he can come visit him. Stevenson says yes. And Lopez, two days later, flies to Fairbanks to meet Bob Stevenson. They become fast friends. A lifelong friendship emerges out of this first meeting. So he lands in Fairbanks, He's picked up, they spend a night there, and then head out into the wilds of Alaska where they are banding wolves. And through Stevenson, he also begins to know some of the people who share the landscape with the wolves. Uh, and this becomes a good deal of what he shares in this book. Not only those who come into the landscape to study the wolves, but what do the people who live in the landscape with the wolves say about the wolves? It's a good question, huh? In the introduction, he says, the truth is we know little about the wolf. What we know a good deal more about is what we imagine the wolf to be. Let's say there are 8,000 wolves in Alaska. 
Multiplying by 365, that's about 3 million wolf days of activity a year. Researchers may see something like 75 different wolves over a period of 25 or 30 hours. That's about 90 wolf days. Observed behavior amounts to about, get this, observed behavior amounts to about three one-thousandths of one percent of wolf behavior. <laughs> the deductions made from such observations represent good guesses and indicate how incomplete is our sense of worlds outside our own. The first part of the book is a very, very good collection of what is known about wolves. And then he begins to ask the question. It occurred to me early on in my association with wolves that I was distrustful of science. Not because it was unimaginative, though I think that is a charge that can be made against wildlife biology, but because it was narrow. I encountered what seemed to me eminently rational ex explanations for why wolves did some of the things they did, only to find wildlife biologists ignoring those ideas. There was a body of evidence which seemed both rational and pertinent and which was being ignored. What people who lived in the Arctic among wolves, who had observed them for years in the wild, thought about them. He asked then an older Nunamiut man, who knows more about the mountains and foothills of the Brooks Range near Anaktuvuk, an old man or an old wolf? After a pause, he said, the same. They know the same. But then he goes on. The name for the wolf is Amaguk. Amaguk is like Nunamiut. He doesn't hunt when the weather is bad. He likes to play. He works hard to get food for his family. His hair starts to get white when he is old. Young wolves, just like Nunamiut, run around in shallow melt ponds, scaring the ducks. And Amaguk is tough, living at 50 below zero, through blizzards for months without caribou, like Nunamiut, maybe tougher. And Amaguk is smart. He sets up ambushes for caribou. He sleeps high up on the ridges when there are humans around. He brings his pups to a kill but won't let them stay there alone. Grizzly bears. Young wolves do a lot of foolish things, get killed. Amaguk used to kill Nunamiut sometimes. Now Nunamiut can reach out and kill Amaguk from a distance with a rifle. Now Amaguk leaves Nunamiut alone. 
times change. Amaguk and Nunamiut like caribou meat. Know the good places for caribou hunting, where ground squirrels are good, where to get raspberries, a good place for getting away from mosquitoes, where loop pine blooms first in May, where that big rock is that looks like Achlak, the grizzly bear, where the creeks are still running in August. And after a pause, the old man looks up and says again, the same. As his writing progressed, Lopez became more and more eloquent in this art of weaving the stories together. The way the Eskimo sees, the way the indigenous sees, the stories that are woven into the landscape through the presence of Western explorers, animals, weather. His understanding of landscape grows. And this becomes clear in the book that is probably his best-known book, that's Arctic Dreams. It came out in 1989, I think which he wrote after five years of work in the Arctic as a field biologist. From one side of the Arctic to the other, from Greenland to the Aleutians, so all the way across, observing narwhal, walruses, the migration of the whales into Baffin Bay, but also the kitty hawks, kitty hake, and the puffins, and the birds, the tiny flowers. In the middle of a description of ice flows breaking up in the spring, he stops to describe a tiny forget-my-not, just poking up. You begin to understand that his time with the landscape, his time with the natural world, and his time with those who lived in this world awakened in him something of a growing love for the way they all lived together, they all wove together. Arctic dreams is the expression of that. It's an eloquent, incredibly eloquent story of the Arctic. He first met icebergs in um, the northern Labrador Sea. They'd set out on a ship taking supplies up to Greenland and in the night, a storm broke. The storm came down, and they found themselves sailing through the darkness into a field of icebergs. And in the darkness, of course, there was a good deal of fear that they would hit one without seeing it. 
Iceland and iceberg, but they come through the night and then awaken the next morning and Lopez comes out on the deck of the ship and discovers icebergs. For the first time he's known about them, but this being out in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by icebergs. Farther to the north, so the first ones they saw had drifted south and were starting to melt to the point that they were breaking apart. But farther to the north, they stood on their journeys with greater strength. They were monolithic. Their walls towering and abrupt suggested Potala Palace at Lhasa in Tibet, a mountainous architecture of ascetic contemplation. We would pass between them. Can you see them? We could pass between them, separated from them no more than by half a mile. I would walk from one side of the ship to the other, wondering how something so imposing in its suggestion of life could be approached so closely and yet still seem so remote. The suggestion of life around them was not an illusion. Harp seals and flocks of seabirds were drawn to fish schooling in the nutrient-rich waters at their base and upwelling driven by fresh water runoff from the iceberg pouring into the lighter water of the salty ocean. With my binoculars, I could follow the scarves of turquoise melt water unfurling 400 feet to the sea. I occasionally drew back from the starboard window to make a sketch or to bring the binoculars up to my eyes. I marveled as much at the behavior of light around the icebergs as I did at their austere, implacable progress through the water. They took their color from the sun and from the clouds and the water, but they also took their dimensions from the light. The stronger and more direct it was, the greater the contrast upon the surface of the ice, of the ice itself with the sea, and the more finely etched were the dull surfaces of their walls. The bluer the sky, the brighter their outline against it. I wrote words down for the tints, the grays of doves and pearls of smoke, Isolated in my binoculars, the high rampart of a mesa-like berg seemed sheared off like a wall of damp talc. Another rounded off smoothly like a human forehead against the sky and was pocked and lined, the pattern of a sperm whale's lacerated tongue. Floating orographic landscapes Sections broken out of a mountain range, snow-covered ridges, cirque valleys, sharp peaks. The steep walls often fell sheer to the sea, like granite pitches. Their surfaces faceted like raw jade, or coarser, like a braided obsidian. He writes similarly, It is my habit when I travel, to note resemblances, particularly 
of form and color. For example, that between the bones of a lemming and a strand of staghorn lichen next to it on the tundra. Or the sound of a native drum made from walrus intestine and its uncanny resemblance to the underwater voice of the walrus. Or between an object I have never seen before and objects I am familiar with, the head of an arctic hare's rib and the rain-spout gorgons of cathedrals. Scoresby's observation is memorable. A pure contrast of black and white draws much in the Arctic together. Sunlit icebergs on a matte dark sea are a very common example. But I also remembered this point when looking up to see Arctic hares feeding on a shadowed hillside or any of the white summer birds against dark hills or soil, ivory gulls, tundra swans, or the other way around, black guillemots flying over the white ice, or any of the Arctic birds in which the black and white pattern is so apparent, snowy owl, snow bunting, dove key, common loon, snow goose, the black bowhead with its white chin patches, walrus on an ice floe, leads in the spring ice. The startling contrast in these images became a reminder for me of the tendency to register only half of what is there in a harsh land, to ignore the other part which is either difficult to reach or unsettling to think about. The dim lit ocean beneath the ice, so difficult of access, remains unknown, as do the winter lives of many of the animals and plants. The ice life of the ribbon seal is known, but not its pelagic life. The beautiful throat singing of the Eskimo, Kadayak, is heard by the winter visitor, but not the shouts of a shaman bound by his helpers with walrus hide cord and traveling in a trance. Caribou moving through the Ogilvy Mountains like wood smoke in a snowstorm, that image but not the caribou cow killed by ravens in her birthing. In the middle of summer, lying on my back on the warm tundra, I would think about the winter because the summer by itself was so peaceful and I was trying to understand how the whole landscape fit together. When he set out to know a landscape, he realized that to know something, you have to become part of it, in a certain sense. You can't stand outside and look at it. In these years in the Arctic, he spent involved both with his colleagues as field biologists, but then also with the indigenous. He calls them Eskimos still. 
although that is broken up in different groups of Eskimos from different parts of the Arctic, he shares with them their hunting. He shares with them the moving from one place to another, migration. He does not hunt. And it's interesting. One of the things, although he is with the hunter, he never hunts. When asked why, he said, the animals don't know me well enough. The animals don't know me well enough and I don't know the right thing to say to them. The last major book that Barry Lopez wrote is Horizon. It's an autobiographical memoir. He revisits certain areas. He got the contract to write it in 1989. Came out in 2019. <laughs> it took him 30 years to write it. He wrote many things during those 30 years, but this book, it took him those 30 years to actually know what he had to say. And it is quite a good book. Now for the first time, Barry Lopez begins to write more explicitly about the challenges we face, about climate change, primarily about our relation to the earth. And I would like to just read a few pieces from that. As he grew older, he began to feel the need for change more urgently. Some of you have met Barry Lopez. Most of us haven't. If you watch him in an interview, he's not a jolly fellow. Uh, he's rather earnest, a little bit, a little monkish, uh, a little sort of Catholic. We don't say that here. But sort of this, this sort of long, this sort of weight of Catholicism rested heavily on his shoulders. But, and if you're just speaking to him, he's very thoughtful and sort of thinks about what he wants to say. He doesn't smile a lot, except in a certain sense when he can smile at himself. But you put him together with someone else. And this is quite remarkable because he has an incredible sort of experience of joy on the other. You can really see Barry come to life when he's engaged in a conversation with someone else. And the other person is sort of given the opportunity to, to show what is true about him or her. And then you can see Barry just sort of, he sort of lights up like a little bit like a, I don't know. And he's there and he lights up and he listens. And some of this you begin to find in this last work, this balance between a deep sense of earnestness and urgency, and I'm going to say an incredible appreciation, joyful appreciation of the voice of the other, which we often sometimes forget. 
But when he writes about the future, when he writes about the challenges we face in our relationship to the natural world, he doesn't write like a prophet, which is interesting. He writes like a seeker. He's not one who lays out and tells us where we have to go, but he brings the questions to life. On Cape Foulweather, which is where this book begins, he thinks and writes and remembers the voyages of Captain Cook and these incredible journeys of navigating the Pacific, the first navigations. And he comes to the following. We no longer seem to be sailing in a time of fixed stars, of accurate chronometers, and of reliable routes. I met a photographer near the Cape one day, close to Otter Rock. He'd been making images of Oregon's beaches during the spring tides. He believed that the seascape exposed twice a month during extreme low tides will disappear in his lifetime as the Pacific slowly rises. North and south of Cape Foulweather, to one way of thinking, the ocean is in fact dying. For prolonged periods of time now, the amount of oxygen available to organisms in the water here is not enough to sustain anything but marginally anaerobic life. And the pH of the water is dropping, as it is in all the world's oceans. As they become more acidic, they become more hostile to life. Some ocean ecologists believe that in 50 years, pelagic food fish might mostly be gone from Earth, their loss representing a major part of the ongoing sixth extinction, the first worldwide extinction since the end of the Cretaceous 65 million years ago. But perhaps, this particular situation will not materialize. The calculus here is incorrect. And then he goes on. Where are the rudders, the compilations of sailing instructions and warnings that we need to successfully navigate a threatening future? What will prove to be the metaphorical gridwork of latitudes and longitudes? the dependable charts for human navigation that will let us heal the rift between knowing something and feeling something, a chasm the Enlightenment created for us when it privileged the ability to know over the ability to feel. What will be the grid of metaphorical rum lines and meridians in a new Portolano one that will not permit the integrity and profundity of the local to slip away in order to serve a vision of the grand. This is a theme or questioning that he returns to often. 
as he goes through this book. He sees the landscapes that he visited earlier in his life change. And he hears the voices of those who can speak most truthfully about these landscapes be silenced. And he brings these voices to expression. When I was young and just beginning to travel with indigenous people, I imagined that they saw more and heard more than I did, that they were overall simply more aware than I was. They were. And they did see and hear more than I did. The absence of spoken conversation whenever I was traveling with them, however, should have provided me with a clue about why this might be true. It didn't. Not for a while. It's this. When an observer doesn't immediately turn what his senses convey to him into language, into the vocabulary and syntactical framework we all employ when trying to define our experiences, there's a much greater opportunity for minor details, which might at first seem unimportant, to remain alive in the foreground of an impression, where later they might deepen the meaning of an experience. If my companions and I, for example, hiking the taiga, encountered a grizzly bear feeding on a caribou carcass, I would tend to focus almost entirely on the bear. My companions would focus on the part of the world of which, at that moment, the bear was only a fragment. The bear, in this case, might be compared with a bonfire, a kind of incandescence that throws light on everything around it my companions would glance off into the outer reaches of that light, then look back to the fire, back and forth. They would repeatedly situate the smaller thing within the larger thing, back and forth, as they noticed trace odors in the air or listened for birdsong or the sound of brittle brush rattling they in effect extended the moment of encounter with the bear backward and forward in time. The moment grows larger. Their framework for the phenomenon, one that I might later shorten to just meeting the bear, was more voluminous than mine. And where my temporal boundaries for the event would normally consist of little more than the moments of the encounter with the bear, Theirs included the time before we arrived, as well as the time after we left. For me, the bear was a noun, the subject of a sentence. For them, it was a verb, the gerund bearing. And this becomes, in a certain sense, I think the gift that goes through this last of Barry's writing, this understanding that there are ways of knowing in our world that expand our own capacity to experience the world. 
Not that we need to go back to the indigenous way, but we need to make space for that in our own way of meeting world and engaging with world. Barry was a traveler, right? 80 countries, they say. Some people say 70, some people say... Anyway, it doesn't matter. He traveled incessantly. And yet, when asked, what is the landscape that means the most to you? It is the landscape in Oregon, where he lived for 50 years. Returned to each time each travel. The house is situated on a bench above the north bank of the Mackenzie River in a mixed old-growth forest. The valley here is too steep for farming, so human settlement has been light. Over the years I have seen, heard, tasted, palpated, and smelled many remarkable things around this place. I do not recall a single day of attentiveness outdoors, in fact, when something unknown, something new, hasn't flared up before me. Douglas firs, cedars, hemlocks, and big leaf maples surround the house so tightly they take away the horizon. Sometimes, when their crowns sway in the wind, I have the sense that I'm living at the bottom of a kelp forest. The expanse of this montane forest, like the expanse of the Pacific Ocean, is something I feel. And against this volume of space, I array the details of life here. The late night caterwaul of a gray fox, so like the wail of a terrified child. Claw marks on the broken boards of an outbuilding dismantled by a black bear, a rubber boa, pale as the stem of a mushroom, curled up by the kitchen steps one morning, the glint from an obsidian spear point, a broken section of which I unearthed one evening with a trowel while laying a brick walk in the forest. They say Barry died twice. Once in September 2020, when a forest fire crept over the ridge and burned the forest around his house. In that moment, this extended body, this being in place and being completely at home in place and being carried by place, that this was gone. His friends say that in that moment, Barry began his journey to the end, which came then peacefully on December 24th, 2020. Just to close, I want that mystery to be clear. Lopez was born on January 6th, 1945. He died on December 24th, 2020. He was born on the day of the kings, and he died on the night of the shepherds. This is a wonderful, wonderful signature of a life, because in many ways it's the path that Barry Lopez took through his life.
he came in as one of those who had every advantage, upper middle class white, the dominant stream of society. And in the course of his life, he became the voice of those who belonged more to the land. He became the voice of the shepherd in that sense. He became the voice of those who knew that the relationship to earth, who knew that the relationship to place, to land, to all that lives there, that there is health and vitality and future in that. I think this journey is something quite remarkable. And it is one of those mysteries that you begin to shine through this biography to wonder what is it that he actually carried as a, I don't want to say as a mission, but each life has a signature. And his life will always bear this signature to be born on the day of the kings and to pass out of this life in the night of the shepherds. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us at info at natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. Thanks for listening.